This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hey. Greetings. What's up? You know, I don't know of any program besides (laughs) Skype that updates as often as Skype does. The last time we were on, or was it? Yeah, I feel yeah, like when we recorded Vanity Fair, it updated. Because I had, when I was just messaging you, I noticed the last set of messages that, you know, from the last time we recorded yeah. started with greetings, updating now. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so sick. And what's funny is... It's like you already. It's like you always know because if you go to your profile, <laughs> it says oh, please just, hold on while yeah. we improve your Skype X, and then it's got yeah. some expletives. So it's like you always know that we're updating. Mm-hmm. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes: debutantes, nurses, stenographers. And librarian. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. <laughs> It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'd like to be you for a day. 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 Sawate, mihi nomen est Stella at Hawk est. Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 176 for June MMXIX. Oracle to Oracle is brought to you by Pigtail girl, a Connie Tendo pigtail girl. Oh, they're worth it! 
Madame Potra will be lonely if she has to travel to hell by herself. You should give her some company. An anime podcast now playing on fanholspodcast.blogspot.com. Back with the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. And some sad news from Mile High Comics. I get their, I guess, weekly newsletter, and they talk about sales and things like that. And over Memorial Day, someone broke in to their headquarters and stole $42,000 worth of comics. But in the same email, so they kind of went through some of the comics that they took, of course, taking from like the glass cases that are right in front that are showing their most valuable. But apparently also whoever wrote the email, I wasn't, I'm not sure if it was Chuck or not the, the owner of it, but he said like, and this person just ignored Spider-Man ASM number 50. I think that's signed by Stan Lee and all of this other stuff that could have brought in Buku cash, but the, the person did leave their DNA trail. So it seems like it's very likely this person will not get away with it because it's been shared over social media because people really love mile high, but sad, but also great that people have used social media for the good rather than the evil. Well, other than that, we're here on another special time. So listen up, Donovan. We are running out of times we can have this particular person on. His tenure as my co-host is coming to a close. And probably just one more time after this, I guess, besides any specials. I, I don't want to make it seem like you'll never be on again. But just, you know, he's been on for these JLAs. So welcome back to the show for the penultimate time, for JLA anyways, Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> you're gonna, you're, you're, you've already canceled me. We're just burning off the remaining episodes. Oh, it's, like, it's like Paradise no. Hotel. Oh, that's sad. Sad to think. How, how, what are your feelings on this? I mean, how have you felt? Is it too soon to ask how you felt your tenure has been on this show? I think. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to remember who you got an email last episode. I think it was Michael Ridge. That is correct. And he had some very nice things to say about. Um, our rapport mm-hmm. as it is. And I think that over time, and granted, we co-host a podcast and we've been co-hosting that podcast for th- almost three full years now. So that I think has helped. And we've been on each other's, you've been on my show several times, so that's helped. But I think it's really developed really well. And so I think I, I've been, I have really enjoyed being on it, it'll it's a little sad to see that like you know the next time we we meet for this will be the, my last bto appearance for a while but um <laughs> granted you are starting to get to the point where um i more or less dropped every bat book except detective oh wow and yeah because yeah, i dropped like robin and nightwing and batman like pretty early in the 2000s and then i dropped detective altogether probably around like 2006 or 2007 Maybe even earlier than that. It might have been like 2004, 2005. 
So we're running into that yeah. black hole of yours. Yeah. And even then I wasn't I was kind of barely reading it, like, you know. So although I did enjoy Greg Rucka's run post No Man's Land. Mm. So that was that was some good stuff. Um, I heard about the Mile High Comics break in, and I was I, I I did have to chuckle at the whole thing, like look at all the stuff he missed. But at the same time, I was you know I was a little bit a little bit ticked off about that because it's yeah. Mike Bailey and I years ago, like three three or four years ago, did an episode a, a crossover between my show and his show about. Um, the comics collecting in the early nineties and the nineties. And my segment was on mail order and uh, catalog comics. And his was on wizard magazine. And in my section, like we, we did a huge section on, in my episode on, on, on American entertainment and entertainment this month, you know, the, the ads in early nineties comics where you see like, you know, young blood number two is going to be hot, you know, and, and I've overused that. I have overused that clip of Andy Leyland, who I don't think he realized what he was getting himself into when he sent me a clip of him saying like hot several different ways because I've used it on like every episode of in country. Oh, I um, know you have. It's a recurring bit and, yeah. and I promise to retire it once I finish in country. But, um, but we talked about mile high and mile high for me and Mike, we didn't have multiple comic shops around us or if you did, you had to like get your parents to drive you and, so Mile High and getting that catalog back when we were teenagers was like a big deal, especially if you were allowed to order from it because it was just – I don't know if you ever got the Mile High catalog back in the day. But it was it was, it was was on newsprint, so it wasn't exactly the high-quality paper. But it was like the thickness of like a magazine. It was just page after page after page of comics. And I used to just – I mean, I would never order them, never order a lot of them, but I would sit there and I'd flip through and sometimes they'd have notations about like, this is the first appearance of this person, this person. And the only thing I flipped through just as much as that was um, my library had copies of the Overstreet Guide and I used to, you know, go and look at them sometimes, especially since you got to see pictures of like old comic book covers and stuff in, in the in the Overstreet Guide. But so I was kind of bummed, especially since um, – yeah, especially since like I owe Mile High Com- well, I don't owe Mile High Comics any money because I gave them a lot of money, but I owe them a lot of my, <laughs> you know, my my comics collecting is uh, I use them quite a bit. It's where I got my issue, my copy of the New Teen Titans number two, uh, which is probably the most valuable comic in my collection, money wise. By the way, um, I don't know if Mike or I have told you this before, but it wasn't until we were listening to your show. And we heard the phrase "New Issue Comics Express." That you knew what nice was. That we f- realized what nice was because yeah. for years we we're like, "Oh, it's the nice com." We never ever both of us. It was like we're <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah." So glad. Twenty years later. Yeah. So you're doing your job as a teacher. Yay! Yeah, I would just agree with your sentiment and Michael Ridge's sentiment, and I think I mentioned it on. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I only thought about it because it kind of sounds weird to say. But I feel like the first couple times that you and I recorded, and Michael Ridge has that super rare episode of Taking Flight that I mm. was on. <laughs> mm. Is it I mean, is it CGC nine point eight graded? I though? mean, I would say that it's pretty fresh. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think mint on card practically, but. 
but okay. you know, I don't know that we were technically like friends then. I think we we're acquaintances, but as you know, we've met and been on each other's show. Like we're actually good friends, and I think yeah. with that, you know, we trust each other obviously because we have this show together. And the fact that you've been on here, it's yeah, it's been fun to talk JLA, and and since you have expertise in that, and I necess- I don't really. It was good to have you on. So I'm oh. I'm sad that's coming to an end too. I'm looking forward to. I think it'll be in November. That kind of special that we'll do. And then mm-hmm. if there's something else that you happen to have done, we can always have you on. But I mean, yeah, we've got required reading. And then I yeah. know that there are a couple of things coming up the pike for your show that I'll be on. Yes, so, so I'm looking forward to those too. Yeah. So I think uh, it's not the end of Tom Panarese. So. Oh, no. no. And, <laughs> uh, and we're covering a couple of comics together too. On my show, once one of them finally ends, we're going to pick up and right. do an episode on yep, it. Yep, yep, yep. And um and and once one of us gets through all of the Terry Moore stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh! I know that's my summer, so, my little summer goal. In between reading the academic stuff, I have to read for this mm-hmm. little thing that I'm doing over in Italy. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I thought let's yeah. And speaking of updates, because that hit at the absolute wrong moment. My Kindle, the Comixology app, just decided to update, and I just dropped. You know, a pretty hefty chunk of change. I mean, it was oh, on geez. sale, but I all 19 volumes, that's going to cost a little bit. So yeah. I, I was just like, I'm just going to get it. It's on sale. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't read them at all, and it was super frustrating. But oh, now it's annoying. fixed. It's all fixed. Oh, cool. Comixology, yeah. So yeah. that's going to be one of my summer reads between, yeah. I guess, actual books. I started buying them with around, with around collection number 9 or 10. Because uh, a friend of mine had loaned me like the first eight or so, and then I basically bought it out all the way to the end of the thing. And it is my it is my um, goal to get all nineteen of them signed eventually. Ooh. I have a bunch of them, and he is signed. Um, and I've had all he signed all of Rachel Rising, but then again, I think I bought all of Rachel Rising directly from him in segments at the Baltimore Comic Con. And I bought Echo. So, like, I, you know, usually I, I usually end up dropping at least like $20 at his table every time I see him because <laughs> I buy like the sketchbook, I buy Echo, I'll probably buy Motor Girl. Um, and I bought all the Ritual Rising trades. I probably will go back and uh, buy the SIP 25 trades, even though I have the single issues, just, just to have the trades. So, yeah, I think. I have no problem giving Terry more of my money. It's, yeah. And like I said last episode, I think it was because I had finally read Motor Girl. I had to think mm-hmm. about which one it is. That basically everything I've read from him, I've absolutely loved. And he's just one of those exceptions of like a man who can write a realistic woman. And yeah. just these really awesome characters that are not as people would call, you know, Mary Sue. But, you know, they have flaws, <laughs> but they're super engaging and just really fun. And I like his wit. And yeah. So Motor Girl is the first actual copy i've bought it because i've just been (laughs) leeching off of you (laughs) but yeah i do want i really liked rachel rising even though i can understand why he needed to take a break because i read this about him i don't know if it's true but he it was so dark that he just needed to take a break from it which i can completely understand but i'm looking forward to what you're talking about where sort of the universe's or all of his little continuities start to combine and, and seeing what mm-hmm. he does to wrap up Rachel. And so this will be good once I read Strangers in Paradise so that I can see how everything starts to work together. And I guess I did see a couple of those characters in Echo. The, um, is it like Tiger? Uh, Tamby and (laughs) one of the other, but I don't want to spoil too much because, um, the reason that they're, 
the reason that those two characters are together has to do with with strangers. So. Okay. Okay, so that's interesting. It, it, yeah, and it's such a long series. It's almost like you see him develop as a writer over the course of it. Okay. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to going back through it. Absolutely. Uh, all right. The only other thing I'll say before we do an intro, because I do have a little game for you, is that I am in mourning over the Game of Thrones. I I don't want to, because you haven't seen it, right? You no. You know what's happened. I, I've read the first three books. I have yeah. the other two, and I intend to read them at some point. Um, I never really got into the show okay. i kind of got turned off by the amount of rape i saw in There's, the first yeah. couple of episodes okay. and i was just like you know what I, yeah so i just i never never got back to it. although i i follow enough people on twitter that i get a little bit of what happened okay you know i i don't know all the things but i know bits and pieces of them yeah well this i mean it's over now it's really mm-hmm. really over and the as we were going towards the end of season eight, uh, I could foresee something happening that I really didn't want to happen, but I figured it was going to happen, and it happened. But I feel like it almost happened in the worst way it could happen, not in the worst writing way, but like the worst, oh my goodness, that had to be the person to do this. So I'm sad. I'm sad about it. I'm not as like intense and really angry as everyone else is that apparently there's some sort of kickstarter or something to like try to get them to refilm this season yeah i don't don't know i mean i really loved this character but i'm not gonna there's yeah i've not gone that insane i don't think if i'm ever going to go insane over a character it's going to be barbara gordon and i've yet to i think do it i've gotten close but i've yet to do it but you know in my own way i'll just get like a little pop fig to commemorate what i wished would have happened and that'll be it but so i'll just you know take my little i'll wear black for a little while and it'll be okay that's that's healthier than than feeling that you were owed the way you thought it should end it no no i'll just you know when the books finally come out 50 years from now i will read them and then decide which ending i like better because i don't know that he's necessarily writing uh the same ending that they gave us i don't know yeah so I had a game. Often we play Kiss, Mary Kill, which is funny because I guess that's a reputation now. I didn't even start this. It's weird. So Josh started it, and then I decided to do it, and I always make my male cohorts uncomfortable by giving them male people. And then I mm-hmm. guested on a podcast recently, which was the podcast that is in the um, the intro, and uh, I was given a Kiss, Mary Kill, and they were all females. Like, I see what you did there, but it's fine. This is a different one, and mm-hmm. maybe people will guess what JLA, JLA story we're doing from this game. So I would like you to, to choose a character from comics that you would be willing to body swap with, a male character from comics, a male person from TV or film that you would be willing to body swap with, and then a member of the opposite sex, I guess, in real life that you would be willing to body swap with. So it's comic, it's JLA TV. It could be JLA, or if you just want to do like wide sweeping comic books. Comic like books. Any character okay, so from comic comics, books. Yeah. Comics, TV, and a and woman from real the, life. Yeah. Yep, there you go. The opposite sex. Superman. Okay. Wow. That's okay. TV. That's tough. It could be film too. So TV or film. Oh, film. Um, <laughs> well, because yeah, that makes it that makes it better. Uh, Does it, or was that sarcasm? Superman, Captain America, film cap, film cap. 
and Sydney Bristow. Whoa. Okay, that's pretty fun. So I, I will also, because I thought this will be fun, and I thought about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think, obviously, come on, I'm oh, going yeah. to change up for a bit with Barbara Gordon. Mm-hmm. And that'll be great, too, because I can make out with Dick Grayson. From TV or film. I, I just wanted to be able to fly. Yeah, I guess I, well, I was just shocked that you didn't. I don't know. I would have thought somebody else from you. So if we were playing one of those like best friend games, I would have failed because that's not what I would have written down. A <laughs> uh, person from TV or film. I went back and forth on this, but I think I'm going to say Ray. Ray Blank from Star Wars because we don't know. Oh, oh, um, yeah, Ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't about to say Ray Skywalker, so I'll just say Ray Blank. And then the member of the opposite sex. Now, this is going to startle people, and it startles me a little bit as well. But I think I'm going to say Mr. Donald J. Trump. And this is why. Because <laughs> I don't get political on this show. But I will say that I think I could get some stuff done. Uh, in his body. And number two, I think also, since obviously he would probably be inhabiting my body, it might be a good experience for him to be inside of a woman's body, at least for 24 hours, to better understand what that would be like. He probably complained about the whole time. Um, and I just realized <laughs> well, that Sidney Bristow and not Jennifer Garner. That was the worst Garner. experience yeah. ever. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be I good. Said, yeah, and I realized I, I said Sidney Bristow and not Jennifer Garner. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say Linda Cardellini, but oh, guess... that's another person. Yeah, <laughs> but then, but you would rather be with her than be her. Yeah, that's true. So, and I do think of you every time I pop on Netflix because I've been watching Sense Eight recently. She's in uh-huh. that Dead to Me show yeah, with Christina. Yes, <gasps> and so I think of you every time. I feel like I'm going to give it a shot. It looks like it's irreverent uh, and funny. I, I keep meaning to give it a shot. I just recently watched Wine Country with uh, Amy Poehler. How was that? Uh, That's also on my it's, list. It's really funny. Okay. It was really funny. Yeah. Well, thank you for playing my game. That was a different one, but I thought, what what game could we play? So if anyone has guessed what we're in the 1999s right now, is what JLA story. This is a little, I guess it's a side story because it kind of is in continuity given the team. But it's not necessarily – I mean it's not an issued number, so it's a nice mm-hmm. standalone story. So we're going to be doing JLA Foreign Bodies. And as always, my lovely co-host is the one who has done the plot synopsis for this particular story. Yeah, so JLA Foreign Bodies is a one-shot 64-page special that came out on August 11, 1999. It had a cover price of five ninety-five. For reference, by the way, the JLA series was on issue 34, which is right before the Day of Judgment crossover issue and right before World War III. And that's what we covered last time I was on the show. The bat titles were about four or five months away from the end of No Man's Land at this point. Our creative team is Len Kaminsky, writer, Val Semeckis, penciler, Princess Rollins, inks, Bill Oakley letters, John Calise, colors, and color separations were by Heroic Age. Dan Raspler was your editor. Uh, the cover of this shows, gives us a little bit of a, a hint as to what is going to happen inside of here. It shows Superman and Batman, one standing triumphantly holding the American flag, one hiding in the shadows behind the other. On one side is, uh, I guess, the darkness of Gotham and the light of Metropolis, but Batman is the one striking the heroic pose with the flag, and Superman is the one hiding in the shadows with the angry red eyes of anger. Um, 
I do want to point out, though, that there is a weird coloring gaff on this cover because Batman is standing tall and he's got a the blue and gray suit. Mm-hmm. But I think it, – it, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure at this time he was wearing something very close to what we would see in the movies, like the all black or the gray and black suit in the comics – because I think that got redesigned after Zero Hour, where they ditched the blue and they went with the more of a black or dark gray tone on tone thing. And so, but if they're going for like the lighter version of Batman, you know, like something of like when you, if you have ever read uh, the old, like, I don't know, 50s era Batman, you know, like, which is all smiles and everything, um, the blue and the gray works, except for the fact that the trunks are not painted blue. It's really, it's almost like off brand Batman or. Or something. It's it's just a little bit odd on the coloring, even though I like the pose Batman is striking. It's just something I noticed while staring at this cover. I'm like, yeah. if they're going for the boots, the cape, and the cowl is blue, why aren't the trunks blue? <laughs> so. You are right. I just pulled up uh, 38, and he's got the, yeah, the yellow. Yeah, like the tone on tone, right? Yeah. And then the black, yep. Which wasn't too bad of a uniform. The one he's wearing on the cover, or the black and the yellow. The black, the black, the yellow. Yeah. wasn't too bad. I was. I. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a fan of the old school, like um, 70s, 80s. Neil Adams, Marshall Rogers, Don Newton, Irv Novik, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Um, <laughs> blue, gray, yellow oval, and stuff. Um, so, that's. That's probably because I, I grew up with like all the licensing stuff and all that. Anyway, tangent aside, um, let's go into the actual issue. We open with the image of Cobra, who is the head of the terrorist organization and cult known as Cobra. No, not that Cobra. This one was created in the 1970s. It begins with a K, not a C. Uh, there's nobody who screams Cobra. And um, <laughs> this Cobra, with a K, is holding an image of the world in his hands and saying Mine, 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 mine. No, he only says mine once. Um, he monologues about how he's a great leader. He's meant to take over the world and the ghost. Uh, <laughs> well, he's the great leader is meant to take over the world because they're all great leaders who are meant to take over the world at this point, right? And the ghostly image of his brother questions this. Cobra talks back to him even though nobody else can see his brother. Cobra talks about how he needs to take over the JLA watchtower because it's, quote, the ultimate military high ground. He's probably not wrong. We cut to the Watchtower where Green Lantern says that he felt a chill and Oracle comments that it's 72 degrees in the room. Oracle then shows them footage of the latest of what have been six outbreaks of mass hysteria in the past two weeks. While she breaks down that they cannot find a cause for it, there is another one that springs up in New York just as they are talking. The League springs into action, and when they arrive, they find themselves susceptible to whatever is causing this hysteria. Even Batman's blood pressure has jumped 1.5%, she notes. They are then attacked, and Oracle begins keyboarding away to figure out just what is going on here. Specifically, she is looking for a common denominator between the outbreaks, and as Superman, Wonder Woman, and Steel fight off Nazi zombies, because... Why not? Nazi zombies. She realizes what that common denominator is, which is a strange-looking female figure hiding in an alley. She apparently is causing them to hallucinate various threats and painful memories, or as Jean calls it, metapsychic warfare. The woman is working for Cobra, who says that all is going according to plan, and she can proceed to the next phase of the plan. 
Oracle gets in touch with him and finds the woman who reveals herself to be named Psychosis. Because of course she is. She attacks, and inside his lair, Cobra presses a button. Almost immediately, all of the JLA are affected. GL falls from the sky, Batman falls over, John melts into a puddle, Flash starts drooling, Steel can barely move, and Superman, well, Superman claims, I'm Batman. They are able to get back to the watchtower, where they are tended to by Plastic Man, Zoriel, and Huntress, who realize that they are all... On Superman's body, John is in Aquaman's, Green Lantern is in John's, Superman is Batman, Steel is in Green Lantern's, Wonder Woman is in Psychosis's body, Psychosis is in The Flash, Aquaman is in Wonder Woman, and The Flash is in Steel. After they are tended to and realize their situation, they hold a meeting and try to get to the bottom of things. Batman tells the group that he listened to the gibberish that Psychosis has been speaking via the Flash and is a dialect of Hindustani spoken by the cult of Cobra, which is misspelled here as Cobra with a C, by the way. We then get briefed on who Cobra is and what he can do before Batman suggests that they get ready for his next move. This includes Huntress teaching Aquaman how to fight in Wonder Woman's body. While Batman, Superman, and Martian Manhunter discuss why Superman isn't as useful as he thinks he is in Batman's body. Steel helps program his suit for the Flash. Oracle then busts in with an update of disasters, natural and otherwise, popping up all over the world, although Zoriel notes that whatever is going on over in Guam is actually the doing of an under-angel and not Cobra. I don't know why that's important or if it ties into anything, but it is there. In the cyclone ch- chamber where Cobra was kind of running things, his little headquarters, it looks like he comes to after having been knocked out himself and the chaos, as he says, has only begun. Jean as Aquaman dives into the mid-Pacific with Plastic Man to save an underwater sea base. They take on genetically engineered super eels. Above France, Zoriel and Aquaman as Wonder Woman do their best to present prevent the Icarus solar probe from crashing and destroying a major portion of Paris. In Washington, D.C., the Flashes, Steel, and Huntress take on terrorists. Meanwhile, on the moon, Steel as Green Lantern works with Wonder Woman in Psychosis's body, the side effects of which give Green Lantern as Martian Manhunter psychic feedback. The situation in the Pacific is taken care of. In D.C., Wally discovers a bomb and phones the trickster to get help defusing it. On the moon, objects in space start firing at the watchtower, and nobody can figure out where they came from. In Cobra's headquarters, Cobra talks about warning the others and manages to get access to the organization's main computer in order to do so. In Gotham, Batman in Superman's body talks to Oracle about how the powers are distracting and yet tempting. Oracle then notes that they've lost contact with the Watchtower and hears a noise on an ultra-high frequency. He goes to investigate. Wonder Woman sits and tries to gain control over Psychosis' body. Green Lantern, in John's body, begins morphing his form and saying, Willpower! Psychosis wakes up and talks to Batman, calling her Master. And deep in the Watchtower's infrastructure, Steel as Green Lantern realizes that they've been sabotaged. Batman as Superman breaks into Cobra's headquarters and confronts Superman, who is in Cobra's body. The other JLAers seem to be adjusting to the bodies they're inside, and Oracle relays orders from the Batman. The League members who are on the Watchtower confront Cobra, who is in Batman's body. 
Cobra then monologues that legions of his troops are converging on the Watchtower, but all is not lost. Once Wonder Woman figured out how to use Psychosis's powers, she set up a mind link between Steel and Green Lantern so the Green Lantern could allow Steel to use the power ring, which he couldn't before because the ring will only work for Kyle. It's got some sort of like mental imprint on it or something. There's all-out fight on the surface of the moon, which is eventually joined by the remaining leaguers who have teleported from Earth. They subdue Cobra's forces, but Cobra disappears. Superman, who is still in Cobra's body, finds him and fights him hand-to-hand, mostly getting the upper hand until Superman turns it around and knocks him out. Superman then gives a speech about how Cobra couldn't see that heroes are powerful because of who they are, not because of their powers. Oracle says, no wonder he spends so much time hanging out with Clark Kent. He must have the poor guy writing speeches like that day and night. The JLA is transferred back to their rightful bodies. Cobra takes the time to teleport out. Back in front of her computer, Oracle curses Cobra for leaving her out and then making her think about how she had switched bodies with someone. They would have been paraplegic. She's upset that he even put the thought in her head. Meanwhile, Cobra is back at home and cursing his lot in life while his brother goads him for even trying in the first place. The end. The end. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's start with overall thoughts. I think switch it up a little bit this time. What did you think about this particular story? Did you know anything about this story going in? And just, yeah. <laughs> the first, first time I've ever heard of the story, yeah. Okay, same here. It was all right. I mean, it was... I don't know if it was six dollars. All right, it came. You know what it came off as? Like back before DC was doing like annual events, like where they'd tie an event through the annual. It just seemed like an extra size, like annual story. You know? Yeah. Like back back when like Superman, Batman, and these other these other comics would have just stories in their annuals that were just simply extra sized, or like a or like a two parter or something. Yeah. So it was it was all right. It was just kind of very run of the mill as far as stuff is your JLA stuff is concerned, you know, big threat, something gets turned around on them. They have to overcome it. I think it suffers from being in the middle of the Grant Morrison run where Morrison's gearing up for his big finale. And that has all these sort of implications and there's sort of an importance to it. Um, Whereas this is just a one and done. That's, you know, it's not terrible, um, but it's not like I wouldn't put it up there and like the, the pantheon of JLA stories or anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder, before I comment on that, continuity-wise where this would fall because we have read the story where Huntress has been kicked off the team, which I don't know if that's temporary or not, and then Adam was brought onto the team. So the team has already shifted. So this is almost a team you know, in the past. So would yeah. you put this, you know, Mark Wade came before Morrison, right? Or is it... Vice versa. Mark Wade did a few fill-ins okay. from what I remember reading, but his regular tenure takes over from Morrison. If I'm if I'm remembering things correctly, okay. so like he comes right after Morrison. This is um, Len Kaminsky. I don't know where you would put this. Definitely before World War Three, because right. that's where Huntress gets kicked off. Yeah. Maybe maybe in the previous trade somewhere. Okay. Part of me wonders if this was supposed to be an annual and it got, um, mm. and they, they decided not to do an annual mm-hmm. and they were like, well, we have this, so let's publish it. So, but yeah, I, I put it before, um, what was the one? It was a crisis times five with the genie 
or Crisis times three. You know, with the Johnny Thunderbolt thing. Times five, yeah. Times five. I put it maybe after, right after that or okay. around that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's the first time that I had heard of this as well. <laughs> I. <laughs> I just was, you know, scrolling through my Word document. I'm like, oh, what is this, GLA Foreign Bodies? And I thought, well, you know, a side story won't be so bad to cover. I actually had a lot of fun with this. I guess this is true to form because you and I have in general disagreed, I think, for the most part. Like, you have a lot of fun with some of those JLA issues, and I'm just like, meh. But this one I actually <laughs> had a lot of fun with. You have to really keep track about who is in whose body. But I just thought it was kind of a wacky adventure and i think it could have really devolved into hijinks if not for like the serious nature of the the stuff that was going on so i I think that there was a good balance between some humor and light moments and okay this is actually like we need to get this situated but yeah i thought it was fun you know for 64 pages or however long it was i think it was it was a fun adventure was it worth yeah that higher price tag i mean i along with professor allen would probably say no (laughs) (laughs) so yeah but it was you know the i was a little caught off guard by the cover which because i hadn't any idea what foreign bodies was about so i'm looking at this cover and i was like this is really weird why is batman smiling and why is superman looking all weird over there and then you find out you know that they switch and i was like oh well that makes sense because batman or superman's mm-hmm. in batman's body even though later on you find out that he's not really so yeah so that was nice that it 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 gives you a hint but it doesn't telegraph necessarily what's happening and yeah i mean i enjoy the movie freaky friday so i i think that this was fun more fun for me than it was for the the superheroes that were in there yeah okay well let's see here there are some i i was trying i was thinking about this a lot today of like how to phrase this question or how to even come up with a question but with some of the body switches there was clear anxiety and some of it was like limb anxiety, like Martian mm-hmm. Manhunter waking up and realizing, you know, he doesn't have a hand anymore because he's in Aquaman's. But some of it is almost like social, cultural. And I'm not sure if it was just like, yes, we're going to point attention to this because obviously it's different or if some sort of message was trying to come through. But a couple of the, the, the first thing that John says when he's in John Henry Irons, right? John Henry, uh, isn't this that thing where that reader that was yeah, because I said John Henry Irons and that might be the folktale. But anyways, John Henry is the folktale. John Henry Irons is steel. Oh, OK. So I've got it. John yeah. Henry Irons is, is like calling out I'm, a white boy. You know, I'm in I'm a, a white, white boy's body. I'm a, I'm a white boy. I'm a skinny white boy. I'm a skinny white boy with a power ring. Yeah, like that. He's focusing on that. Aquaman is super hung up on being in a woman's body, which someone had to be because she was the only one in the field of action there. So it's going to happen. And then even later on, when Wally, who's in Steel's body, he makes a comment about like this. 
I can't remember what it was exactly, but like this white boy's going to get it done or something like that. And then Steel goes, white? And, you know, aren't you going to be surprised or something like that? Which was a weird comment because I couldn't tell if Wally was talking about himself himself or the body he was in. And mm. if he was talking about the body he was in, I wondered, does no one know that Steel is black? Has Steel never taken off his costume? But all that to say, do you think there were some sort of like, I don't know, underlying messages here with being in, you know, a completely different body or like really trying to shake it up and, and cause something? I, I don't know. Are you, are you kind of understanding what I'm getting at? I can't yeah, even really formulate I, a question. I, I yeah, if there's if there's a social commentary of how somebody would would react if they were within the body of somebody of, you know, the opposite gender yeah. or sex yeah. or, or or race or, or a different race or something, I don't know. I think with the with the steel going like I can't believe, uh, <laughs> I think it's just I think it's done more for just a. a gag okay. or, or or a joke um with with steel and his reaction to it because it's because it's because steel's a big guy you know so it's like you know this sort of just this i think it's just done for a laugh to be honest with okay. you it, it reminds me i keep coming back to this line from better off dead and i don't know why but there's a scene in better off dead where John John Cusack, the conceit of John Cusack, better off dead if you've never seen it listeners is that John Cusack's girlfriend uh, dumps him and he spends like half the movie thinking of ways to kill himself and this is a comedy by the way and um, at one point he's standing on top of a of an overpass and he's like gonna jump and his best friend Charles Demar who's played by Curtis Armstrong aka Booger <laughs> from uh, Revenge of the Nerds is like you know oh buck up little camper and he and he gives him a pat on the back and the pat on the back causes Cusack to fall off the bridge but he lands on top of a garbage truck oh, wow. like you know an open garbage truck so he's sitting in the garbage truck and he passes by two telephone linemen one of whom is black and the guy's actually played by the guy who was the captain on 21 Jump Street Stephen Williams oh. and the line the line is well that's a damn shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that so i just keep coming back to that line because i think it's just it's just a gag you know so i didn't really read too much into it i can see a little bit of 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 commentary of regarding aquaman and wonder woman's body because of because of the manliness of this aquaman they are they do seem to be playing up his whole like idea of the, the king and masculinity and everything even though I don't know if you serve that long on the team with Diana, you would think that she is kind of your equal. I mean, she's obviously she's royalty and everything, you know. Yeah. Although, although I do, I do like the fact that um, he has to learn how to fight. Yeah. Again, because of the way his his body is has changed, just because. I mean, even if it was like. Um, if, if he had been big and all of a sudden he was just in like you know he he gotten like really. The, the the psychosis caused him to get really obese or something, and he had to learn how to fight in that body. Right. You know, you move differently. So, and I like the fact that Huntress has to teach him. I, I did like those scenes. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you know, having a woman teach him is probably not. What and he and there's a boob joke too. So a boob joke. Yeah, well, because he says like your center of gravity has changed. He looks at it, he looks at Diana's okay. breast and goes, "Yes, so I've noticed." <laughs> I must have missed that one, but he does kind of make a comment too about how he admired Diana in sort of you assume like a sexual way because then he says, "But I didn't mean it to, you know, to be like this kind of thing." Mm -hmm. But there's also a bit of a penis joke too, I think, because 
at the beginning or shortly after, I guess, that John John has actually formed up a little bit. He says, hey, look on the bright side. Well, before I'm on page 25, but you got a hand out of the deal. Yes, yes, yes. And so because Diana, well, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. Whoa, that's not a.k.a. A.k.a. Aquaman said, you know, what will I tell Mira? And John says, look on the bright side. You got a hand back out of the deal. Think of it as like proof of some kind of thermodynamic observation of sorry conservation of anatomy principle so the thinking being that he lost his wee wee but he got you know an arm back yes and then it was funny because batman's like okay that's enough of that it's still keeping on the switches because i think for it's called foreign body so this is like the main point of things Mm -hmm. besides aquaman do you think it was realistic how the characters were portrayed in their foreign bodies and and the other struggles that we saw the the batman characterization in in relation to what we saw in the grant morrison jla stuff seems to be pretty on point i like the fact that they have superman or or it's we we don't find out until later it's cobra as superman but um that like you know the idea that he wants to go in and, and then batman's like you can't do as much as you think you can because like He's he's operating under the assumption that Superman thinks he's invulnerable and doesn't really take into account his own like the situation around him, which I think honestly Superman's smarter than that and would realize that he's not invulnerable. But at the same time, Batman, I think it's it's on point for Batman to assume that Superman, you know, like to make the assumption he's making and Cobra's overplaying his hand anyway. Right. I did like Wally. Wally. Wally inside Steel saying th- something on the same page. How am I supposed to run this suit? I can't even program my VCR. Yeah. Which I was shocked um, about which from Wally, but dates the book. But it, it's again, it's it's a very easy joke to make. And then um, uh, I did like the um, I did like uh, John's assessment of the ring. Extraterrestrial piece of junk jewelry, shoddy design work. If you ask me, because it's mentally connected to Kyle, and it, it knows that that's not Kyle inside right. of Kyle's body, which I thought was a good detail. Because yep. I don't think other versions of the Green Lantern ring allow you uh, or have that issue. I think that anybody can use the ring if they have the willpower to do okay. it. I'm not sure though. I know that in in um, Green Lantern Rebirth, I think it is Ollie uses Hal's ring for something but um or it might not be it, it's in a it's in one of the jeff john's green lantern issues ollie uses hal's ring but um but i don't know if it's because hal lets him or not gotcha. interesting besides batman's body do you think that the other switches were intentional intentional meaning coming from cobra maybe flash inside of steel would make sense because he's got the, the world's first fastest guy being put into a heavy, heavy suit of armor that he has to learn how to move. Beyond that, I'm not entirely sure. Aside from putting psychosis, Wonder Woman in Psychosis' body, because Wonder Woman is also one of the smarter people on the team and would probably adjust very well to whatever body she ended up in. Yeah, I would just say anyone better than Wonder Woman in Psychosis' body I think would be Martian Manhunter because of that mm-hmm. psychic link. So I think that he'd be able to have more willpower yeah. potentially to do what she's she has to do at the very end. Yeah, yeah. 
Kyle, I was surprised about Kyle's and John's body, right? Okay. Yes. I was a little surprised about that just because since the ring deals with so much willpower that it takes him so long to form or reform Jean. And then even later on in, in the story, he says, like, I'm barely holding this together. This is all I can take. And I think he's one of the, the members that is on the bench, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and doesn't go out to fight. So it's just interesting how the willpower doesn't necessarily translate well from Kyle to, from, I guess, Green Lantern to Martian Manhunter. I... I think Cobra, if it was intentional or it was just story purposes, I think that it does work well because it seems like they each have to overcome some sort of mental blockage or physical blockade and, and get to where they need to. You know, like steel, for instance, is very precise and, you know, mechanical engineering and yeah. all of that. And so for him to think creatively like Kyle does with the ring is really a, a stretch. And so he's able to manipulate. Manipulated and, and use the ring in the way that he would normally use it. So they're each able to overcome, which is fun. I think that's part of the fun of this particular story is that you see them struggling and then they've got to reach some sort of understanding with the body that they're in and use what they know and merge it with the body they're in and go at it. So I think that's that's fun to almost uh, jury rig, you know, their mm-hmm. superpowers. Yeah. I, and there's some other like um, Aquaman or a John cutting himself on the hook. Right, yeah. And it just like little little bits like that um, were, were done pretty well. Well, it took 40 pages or so for the reveal to happen that actually Cobra was inhabiting Batman's body and Superman is in Cobra's body. Do you think that it was good placement? It was, you know, gosh, two-thirds in or so. Well, I guess maybe a little bit more, four-sixths. Yeah, it's two-thirds. And so it was a good placement. And then do you think it was dealt with well? Because there wasn't anything like dun-dun-dun kind of. You, you just almost had to like, oh, my goodness, Batman's in his body or Superman's in his body. What did you think about the reveal that Superman was in Cobra's body? I liked it. I like how um, I like how they, they took some time to uh give us the jla and adjusting to each other's bodies and then you know showing that these are people who are superheroes and can adjust to any situation turned around and started saving people in those foreign bodies to do the title drop um the idea that 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 superman would be staying on the watchtower in batman's body because he feels essentially useless and he's a little mad about that also makes sense but then when you get the reveal and it's um, and it's not it's it's a little bit subtle, you know. At first, it's like have to warn them, and then you're like, "Oh, wait a second, this is what's going on." Um, yeah, I like it. I like it because it's uh, it's it's there. You get it, and then you move on to Gotham, where where um, where Batman is, and then you flip back to the Watchtower, where uh, where we have the where we have confirmation of what Superman was talking about, where. Uh, psychosis is in Flash's body and, and Batman's standing over him going, yes, my child. And it's like, oh, okay, I see what happened. If this were a like a two-parter, I would imagine the, or a classic kind of two-parter, yeah. the, the Cobra re- reveal would come at like the end of the first mm-hmm. issue on like a splash page or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Like one of those. Um, but we don't have that here because it's not a, it's not a two-parter. <laughs> so I think it's done well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, subtle and... I think also when you look back at everything, it wasn't 
telegraphed necessarily. And Cobra does just a good job of like infiltrating the team. And it makes sense. Yeah. Like it's not a head scratcher of, well, why would he do that? Because yeah, it makes sense that he would want to somehow really get in to the middle of the team. So I thought that that was, uh, that was a good play. And I think it, they saved it for, uh, for a good time. Cause you're more concerned about how the JLA members are dealing with their bodies. I think to do it too soon and have the the jig be up then you wouldn't have as much fun seeing how they're dealing with their foreign bodies and i like the scene where batman as superman comes to goes to the cobra headquarters to meet you know the real superman and all the guards are going to like shoot him down and everything and superman knowing that he is in cobra's body acts like cobra I think again that shows it shows um, that Superman is is uh, smart and resourceful, and I like I like how that's uh, how that's done. Absolutely, and then that was fun too because he is like hissing and all of this stuff, and then when they leave, Batman says something like, "Watch the sibilance, like don't overdo it, yeah, don't hiss all the time." <laughs> I do want to talk about this conversation between Batman and Oracle, and then of course Oracle sing at the end. Very interesting okay. what he says. Of course, you know, the coloring is very interesting, just very dark, even mm-hmm. though he's got this bright costume. But she asks, how how is it being Superman? And he doesn't really give her anything. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm adjusting. And then she says, you know what I mean. What does it feel like? And, yeah, he says, exhilarating, dangerous, the temptation to fall back on the powers instead of relying on skill, training, and intellect could easily lead to an erosion of judgment. I'll be glad to be rid of this when this is over. <laughs> what are your thoughts on his particular feelings? Because actually, you know, how, however, it's kind of funny to poke fun at him and what he says. But I think that he's actually very honest with that and is very telling and intimate of you know, and almost being vulnerable with Oracle there. But what do you think about what he has to say about being Superman? I think he's not giving Clark enough credit. But then again, he never does in this era. Also, although I don't think this is a reference, I will make it a reference. Okay. Have you ever read the – you probably have. You, no. Uh, the Venom storyline from Legends of the Dark Knight uh. from back – was it 1990, 91, where they introduced the idea of Venom that eventually you know, right, with leads to Bane? Yep. Well, in that in that story, he becomes addicted to Venom, and Venom that iteration of Venom messes you up, where you become reliant on Venom and the strength, and you become less and less um, cerebral or intellectual. I mean, to the point where he basically becomes like a brute, you know, like like the Hulk or so. He becomes like Bat Hulk, you know. <laughs> talk like this i and i don't think this is a reference to that but it made me think of like how when he was when he was addicted to the venom he was um so addicted that he he was like me no need read books use brain me use fist it's like you know it's so so i could see that if he's calling upon that memory you know he now has this power and he's like you know this could get addictive very quickly because i've had that tendency before but then again that's me making a deep cut for a reference that probably isn't there it could i mean you know it's probably not a reference to venom but i'm just yeah yeah i think uh thanks for making that call because i don't know that i would have necessarily made that connection it's yeah you know i'm trying to think about what clark would be like if all this stuff had happened to him that happened to batman i'm thinking well 
go read Speeding Bullets and then you'll find out. But <laughs> which is actually one of my favorite Elseworlds. I uh, I guess it's just hard for you know Bruce worked so hard to get where he is. So I think maybe that's why it just feels like maybe he doesn't want or he wouldn't want all of his skills to go to waste if he just had power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's just, I think it's very interesting how, I mean, he's really honest with, with Barbara. I think if it were any other character, I think maybe he would say it would just keep getting used to, or it, it keeps, it takes getting used to, or he would make maybe some flippant joke about the costume. I don't know, but he lays it all out there. And, you know, I wonder in the back of his mind if he also is thinking, besides saying this, you know, what sorts of things he could have done. You know, what if I had this body? Like, when I was reading, I was thinking about No Man's Land. Like, what if he had been Superman in No Man's Land at that point in time and how he could yeah. fix things? But I think he's just not one to dwell on those situations. He's Batman. This is a temporary thing. Whatever has happened has happened. He can't go back and change that. And so he's not going to rely on this body that is not his. But uh, I, I think it's a, a very good scene. The other scene that I actually don't care for as much just because I feel like it's almost shoehorned in is the Oracle scene at the end. And this is, I feel like you've actually been on a couple times where, yeah, shoot, what was his name? Prometheus, yes, right? Yes, thank you. Prometheus had tempted her with this. Shag, your BFF, Shagalicious, was on. And we when we did Underworld Unleashed and Neuron had tempted her as well. But yeah, you've got her wondering why she wasn't body switched. And she's hurt, I guess, in two ways. You know, the thought that she could have been able, she could have had powers or walked for a day, and then on the other side, someone would have been a paraplegic and sitting where she is. What do you think about this? And and it's just placed here. I mean, placement and, and what she says and that uh, she's pretty angry here. I mean, she does say, damn you, Corbro, damn you, for even making me consider it. Thoughts on this particular speech that she has or soliloquy, I suppose. I did not realize that she didn't know that Superman was Clark Kent. I figured she would have known that. I get, it seems gratuitous to me. It just doesn't – it seems out of place. Like, like did Cobra even know she was there? Because he didn't get Huntress or Zoriel or – It was just the people on the battlefield and she was – yeah. On the battlefield and she was projecting in. So if – if psychosis's powers work where the physical presence of the person has to be within her proximity, because I'm assuming that's how psychosis's power. And by the way, psychosis sounds like she should be like a villain in, in, in an early '90s image comic, like Brigade or Bloodstrike or Youngblood or something. I just, anyway, but psychosis sounds like she should have like powers that were like you know, if you're physically in her presence, she can do this to you. But if you're like on a monitor screen or something, she doesn't have that yeah. sort of range. So I don't think it, I don't think it worked that way. And I think Barbara would have yeah. understood that, especially since there were other leaguers who didn't mm-hmm. get affected. So it sounds it, 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 and it seems out of place to me. Like like why have this of all character yeah. moments for her? I agree with you, and you know it's been done before. I'll say, but you know we can't really tell where in continuity this. Though I guess if you if your thinking is correct, at least the underworld unleashed would have happened, and this happened before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before, before the Prometheus, Prometheus confrontation. Yeah. But yeah, 
with Prometheus, it's done I well. Would, yeah, I would agree. And that's face to face. And she has a physical altercation yeah. with him, and she's thrown a window. Yeah, that one's he really. He throws her through yeah, the window, doesn't he? So this, yeah, yeah, I just I didn't care for this particular character beat. I agree with you one hundred percent. I mean, that whole splash page, that purpose. You know, you see them thrown back, and almost an echo of their body in front of you know something's happened she's not you know no one else is thinking these things i'm sure huntress is like thank god that didn't happen to me you know she probably would have been switched with plastic man and that would have been the worst and mainly for her own physical body because plastic man would have been all over that because <laughs> you know he would have been <laughs> just like he was all over uh big barter in that dress that was i still can't get that out of my mind but yeah i just i i didn't i didn't care for this and i i felt like she was i don't know not really like miserable or because I can't think of a word that's not like commiserating because it's she's not commiserating with anyone but like self-pitying almost I felt like this is yeah, yeah a negative aspect of her that that I don't I mean it comes out sometimes but I, I just don't think this was the place for it so mm-hmm. well my I final agree. question is do you think that Huntress finds Wally more annoying than Plastic Man given this story No, I I don't think that she could find anybody more annoying than Plastic Man. I think she does tell Plastic Man to shut up at one point, but because she's paired up with Wally and Steel's body and that whole bomb thing, she's like super annoyed at the bomb thing. And then at one point, Oracle is talking to her and like one of the speech bubbles is just a scribble mark, which I found really (laughs) funny and delightful. But yeah, I think... Wally might maybe it's just a circumstance that she finds Wally really dumb because he's in someone else's body and is, was not performing as he should have been performing. But uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's always going to be Plastic Man at the bottom of the little totem pole. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts that you would like to bring forth on this particular issue? No, I will say though that if you were to give this to somebody who never really had read a JLA comic, it's a good issue to put in their hands. As long as they, it, I mean, if you say to them, "Hey, are you familiar with like you know the people in the Justice League, you know Superman and Batman?" Yeah, yeah. Well, here's a, here's a story where a villain like does something to them. They all end up in each other's bodies, and like Cobra's a good villain for a story like this because he's like costumey yeah. and he's action figurey. So like, if you're coming in this and, and and you're coming in pretty cold to the JLA at this point, it's a good story, entertaining story. It's a good entertaining story all around, but it, it is a good new reader story because you get a you get an action figure villain, um, you get a body switch storyline, which is totally like been done in other things so um so you kind of the fun of that and then you have there's a lot of solid action and the art the art's pretty good too so um yeah Yeah, and with cobra because i was confused what was going on with the floating head hashtag carolyn knows at the beginning which was his brother i guess but there was some exposition Mm -hmm. in the middle does it count as exposition that explained his history. So I thought that they good, did a good job. So overall, I would say that this is new reader friendly. I think you would just have to figure out like who's Oracle, who's Zariel, but, or who's Huntress. But otherwise, it's a, I would agree with you there. Good point. Uh, grade out of 10, what should we say? I'm going to go with a 7. A 7 out of 10. What's our grading system, you think, for this particular issue? 10 what? 7. <sighs> Toothless hags? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I say that because psychosis looked like a toothless hag. Yes, it's a toothless hag. I mean, basically ripped right out of Macbeth. 
Um, yes. Okay, so seven out of ten toothless hacks. I'm going to raise you because I did enjoy it. I, hmm. <laughs> you know what? This is very generous, I think, but I'm going to give it a nine out of ten toothless hacks. Oh, I just had a fun Very one. cool. I enjoyed it. Okie dokie. Now on to some listener feedback. Mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. I just have one listener feedback, and it comes from the previous episode, episode 175, from Haas TBL, Hostable. Hostable? <laughs> I don't know. I'm so sorry. In your disagreement with Donovan about whether or not Batman is empathetic, I'd suggest that there is distinction between whether or not someone is empathetic or to what extent they are or aren't. And, sorry, and whether or not someone has the emotional tools required to be able to adequately express that to other human beings. So are they empathetic or have the tools? I would tend to hold the view that many of Batman's actions are empathetic and his core mission, trying to prevent what happened to him as a child from ever happening to anyone else, is in some ways an empathetic one, but that he is sorely lacking in the ability to communicate empathy in ways that most people would understand. The only people he really lacks empathy towards would be those who would perpetrate the kind of criminal violence that traumatized him as a child. Tom, as one with whom I've discussed empathy on many occasions, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a fair assessment that he certainly feels empathetic but and, and has that capacity but that lacks the tools or, or does not know how to express it in a way, especially this, the post-crisis Batman. It's. I don't know if it's a. If it's. If it's the trauma of his life. If it's the. If it's the. If it's a maturity thing. You know, like, will he grow into somebody who is more like the pre-crisis Batman of the of the like fifties or the Earth Two Batman or somebody who is a little more settled and therefore more. I always got the idea more well-adjusted and more of a father figure and more of a you know, um, and less of a, of a grumbling prick all the time. I don't know, but I, I think though, without getting too much into this, because it's, it's a, it's a hotly debated (laughs) Twitter topic and, and who am, and who am I to define masculinity? I think it's a very good, I think it's a good illustration of masculinity. Uh, There's an issue with masculinity in our country, if you want it, in our society. And it might be in other societies, but we'll just talk about our culture or society in general. That some people refer to it as toxic, and and, and I think in some ways it is. But there's this withholding of emotion, even though you feel these things. But the the way that you – and I think I brought this up before. The way that you you are not – you feel you feel that you are not allowed to express your emotions in certain ways because you are you feel that you will be shamed for doing so because we've been brought up to be more stoic in that regard or that um something like feelings emotions like sadness emotions like pity or love in certain ways especially toward another male uh, have to be done in certain ways, and very often there are men who get who act out in anger 
because they can't express the emotions like they won't allow, they want they're not they feel that they're not allowed to cry so they lash out in different ways um i think i think that's what you see and sometimes in batman where like this man has an understanding of all these complex emotions yet he is he has walled himself off in a way that like he will not let that show through and when he does it's for it sometimes it's often as anger for instance in new titans number 55 <laughs> dick has just returned from space because titans and he has just found out from cousin Oliver, Jason Todd might be dead and he confirms it and he goes to see Bruce and he just starts yelling at Bruce. He's like, why did you let him become Robin? And Bruce just decks him and starts yelling. It's a great scene mainly because Marv Wolfman wrote it and George Perez drew it. But um, it's just this great scene where he just, you see Bruce like fist clenched screaming at Dick, like, you know, airing out like all the frustrations and the pent up anger and the ups- and and how upset he was at Dick for leaving and but it's it's in the context of anger and not any sort of like expression of emotion between a father and a son or two friends and it's pushing Dick away so and again that's it's very true to life for a lot of men so I, I don't know I'm kind of off on this tangent like I said I don't know if I'm an authority on masculinity. Twitter would probably tell me that I'm not, but but there you go. So that's my that's my armchair psychologist sociologist. Please direct all yep. complaints, um, comments about my being sexist to at Firestorm oh Fan God. on Twitter. <laughs> Could you imagine if people started writing into him? That'd be weird, <laughs> and just like calling him Tom, and he'd be super confused. Yeah, I think I can uh, almost pick up what you have put down there, Hostable. I don't think Batman's without empathy, I'll say. I do think that he lacks it at times. And I guess that's true of every human being, that we can't be a perfect person and always have empathy. But he just seems to lack it in, like, really crucial moments. And I think maybe with my judgment and because I'm a hypocrite and, frankly, that annoys Donovan – I hold on to those moments because it seems like they come at really terrible, like Huntress or Stephanie. And I, well, see, it's with the women. It just seems to come at really bad times and with female characters. And so that's why I'm, I'm hard on Batman. Continuing on in, in the rest of this from Hostable. He says, I haven't read The Killing Joke in over 25 years and had absolutely no recollection of Batman leaving a Joker playing card on Barbara's hospital bed. After looking at it again yesterday, why'd you do that to yourself? I would interpret Batman's crumbling the card and leaving it for Barbara as emotionally stunted man for (laughs) I'm going to make the Joker pay for this. Not something done out of a lack of empathy, but something done out of an inability to communicate his feelings well or in a healthy way. Yeah, I would just say that he probably shouldn't have brought that card in whatsoever, no matter the symbolism, because I think someone who could potentially at that time already be suffering from PTSD doesn't really need to look at a Joker card. He finishes up. If you haven't read it, I'd suggest checking out JLA in Incarnations number two, as it does a great job exploring the dichotomy of Batman's views about others and his inability of communicating 
them well. BTW, I actually work for the company that makes the advice from a bat t-shirt, assuming that your mom didn't get you a knockoff version. No, I don't think so. She got it from the, I believe, National Wildlife Federation, NWF, because I also have a advice from a moose, so I assume not, and I did tell her, I texted her and said, hey, somebody comment on my show that he slash she, I'm not sure, works for uh, for that company, so... You made her happy. So, no, I don't believe it's a knockoff, but they I guess they got the image. I don't know if you work for NWF or you got the image or NWF got the image from you, but there you go. Remember, you can always post online and uh, on any of those episodes, and I'll see it, thanks to Dustin. Or you can email me at backroll.oracle.g. What, what, what? At, bat, at backroll.oracle at gmail.com and yes if you have any disagreements with tom you can send them my way i'll be glad to forward them to you or just write them into shagalicious we are going to take a break when we come back we will review our only back row issue number 35 aka 87 but first zeiss's radio hour featuring hostile takeover by mark b and blade and featuring chester p and and westwood whoo Attention, attention, all security. We have reason to believe that British rap activists may be attempting a hostile takeover of the building. Synchronize watches, <laughs> memorize the plans, run the blueprints and wear gloves on your hands. Check the walkie-talkie in case of an emergency. Execute the conspiracy, baffle the enemy, overthrow the presidency. When it's on, get me, I'll be there, don't let the residency. Keep your eyes open for security. We'll crack the code in unity. The mission is to steal the microchips, anything, audio, recordings of our beats and our vocals, get them to radio stations, patients, time will tell, don't need this information to acquaintances, friends or relations, the danger factor, he's a producer, I'm a professional rapper, audience attractor, enemy subtractor, the defender of the realm, rap protector, invading your sector. Security alert, we have intruders on the premises, believed to be agents from a militant nemesis, they must be apprehended and brought to Barbers carrying loaded microphones Sell or take the cover The lens of surveillance cameras We can't afford to be caught in the act Damage the scene with the music To see the way they react Leaving no evidence No fingerprints No clues The situation is volatile And hard to diffuse The plan is simple We'll meet at 10 Head in the direction of Radio 1 Don't apprehend The guards alert But they're slow We had to get this to Tim So he could let the world know it won't be long before the LP's available I might be signed, but I'm still untamable And for now, unobtainable Came in the scene, because the scene is cannibal Tell him this felon ain't a criminal His weapons are minimal, the approach subliminal Surveillance is down, I've lost their position Protect the live room, they mustn't stop our transmission This is Red Alert, kill on sight, these men are soldiers Do anything you can, it's a hostile takeover The security's trapped Confused by the act, two men with balaclavas leaving him tired and gagged. Dragged into the toilet with his hands cuffed, where his legs are now tied to the radiator. And now we memorize the way around the building according to the maps, the plans, and blueprints. Turn left out of the toilet, up the stairs, take a right straight ahead. Room 206 live on air. It's time to execute, hold the rest of them back while I deliver the record into the hands of Westwood. Pull 
Pull off the balaclava to reveal all As the record rotates, he says you got balls I reply, yeah, I know it yeah, I mean, what's up, what's the deal? You got the album? Let's get the joint on and blast off the UK Yeah, that's all Damn, let's drop the bomb, baby Yeah, let's go They've taken over, they've taken over. What, what? They've taken over, they've taken over. Yeah, yeah, they've taken over, they've taken over. What, what? They've taken over, they've taken over. Yeah, yeah, they've taken over, they've taken over. What, what? They've taken over, they've taken over. Yeah, yeah, they've taken over, they've taken over. What, what? Might be a blade, it's a hostile takeover. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Batgirl number 35, a.k.a. 87. Terrible Trio, part two of three. Terrible. Writer, Merigrid Scott. Penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Norm Rapmund, and Jose Marzan Jr., and colorist the beautiful Jordi Belair. The Den, Burnside. Batgirl is upside down in an empty tank, if you recall. Vulture is rather upset that Fox did this, mainly because she told him slash her not to bother the bats. Batgirl takes note of the conflict and wonders who is really in charge. Shark tells Vulture and Fox to keep it down because of the guests. Fox is then allowed to make a pitch, but Vulture will not bail him or her out when it all goes wrong. Fox explains that the den is a place for all of them, as in the guests, to explore their most perverse desires. So this is basically Eyes Wide Shut starring Tom Cruise and Nicole So explore their most perverse desires with no fear of judgment. The Terrible Trio can scratch every itch and make their dreams come true, and they'll start with killing a bat. The tank, of course, begins to fill with water as Batgirl quickly rids herself of the straitjacket, talking all the while in the hopes of riling Fox up. She tries all avenues she can think of in order to break the glass cage, but Fox thought of everything. Vulture is nervous, but Shark only comments that, basically, Batgirl should be happy she's not naked, if you notice that comment there. (laughs) Elsewhere, at the apartment of Alicia in Burnside, Alicia prepares for a meeting with the British company that's been buying stock. She considers what a relationship with a hero is like, in this case, getting used to not being a priority and always ranking below, quote, fighting evil, end quote. Elsewhere, elsewhere, on the curb outside Barbara Gordon's new apartment, Jason Bard is sleeping with her stuff in order to protect it from burglars, which I guess it's not really a burglar outside, but oh well. And he waits, and he's waiting for her to return. A man off the street, I assume, starts to take some of her stuff and Jason stops him. And while Jason thinks that it's weird, he ends up hiring a company to move her stuff to his apartment. Mm. Elsewhere, elsewhere, elsewhere. Alicia is now at Gordon Clean Energy headquarters at 345 in the morning for her meeting. A rude Mr. Wilmington and Ms. Rochester, isn't that funny, Tom? Isn't it funny? Wonder Mm -hmm. where Barbara is and say this is the main problem, her absence. They have acquired a nearly controlling stake in Gordon Clean Energy and frozen many of its accounts. 
This is a takeover. Alicia and Babs control 51%, but they have to vote together. They want Alicia to vote Babs out of the company, and they use evidence that Babs formed a shell company in order to buy a company belonging to Pamela Isley, which happened several episodes, sorry, issues, well, and episodes earlier. She has also been on the payroll for months, but hasn't been doing anything. If the company is to continue, Babs needs to be terminated immediately, severed from every level of decision-making, and the name will be changed to Gotham Clean Energy. Babs's memory be, will be erased, and if Alicia does not do this, the info about Poison Ivy will be released, the company's reputation will be destroyed, the stocks will tank, and all employees will be dumped on the street... Alicia tries to defend Babs, mainly that she thinks everyone deserves a second chance. And the company really doesn't care about her morality. Would Alicia throw away the livelihoods of everyone who works for Gordon Clean Energy just to save Barbara? As all of this is going on, Batgirl is still in the flooding tank, now out of her restraints. Since Fox accounted for everything he knew about inside of her weapons pouch, she uses something he does not know about him slash her and of course the rest of the readership as well i.e her backpack which actually houses an emergency parachute if you recall my interview with margaret scott she said it would finally be revealed what was in her backpack and here it is an emergency mm-hmm. parachute. it works and the pressure knocks off the top of the tank she goes after the brawn i.e shark and taunts him all the while he injects himself with some serum it certainly would have been easier to just say it was venom but backer calls it a steroid and he becomes even larger backer has to use her smarts against the behemoth and ends up stabbing him in the eye with her gauntlet due to the fight the den is on fire the clients are running out and Batgirl is P.O.'d A.F. <laughs> and basically has a who's next kind of stare. To be concluded. Whew. Okay. So you have, uh, this is the first part you've been on in this particular trilogy. But mm-hmm. we'll, I'll ask an easier question right now, which is, of course, art-wise. What, if any, did you have any favorite panels I like the sequence where on page uh, on my PDF here, it's 15 of shark injecting himself, then hulking up. And that one panel where like you can tell how big he's gotten because his shoulder he's you see just his like what I guess is his shoulder and the part of the top of his uh, his arm. And you see like Batgirl's um, just her eyes and the top of her head and she's looking up like and she has a look on her face like oh wow you got so much bigger than you were a few moments ago i like that because then it, it then it cuts to the splash page where he just punches at her and she dodges out of the way and he's just enormous so it's a it's a good setup with a, with a really good reveal yeah i think strong art all around on this particular issue i oh, i like paul pellets here a lot yeah, yeah i really like the cover by francis manipole and he did the cover on the previous issue as well and i should have mentioned that just Mm -hmm. i I like his style and it's almost minimalist but i really liked what he did on uh the flash during the new 52 run of course a variant cover by joshua middleton i would say this is also minimalist if only that's just backroll it's not necessarily anything there it's very it's way more pinup-y i mean it's not bad i was just i like the the uh, variant cover from um 
the last issue more. Yeah, agreed with the clock tower behind her. Yeah. The last, well, the opening page I really like in the tank. Mm-hmm, that's cool, see yeah. see the reflection of Fox, Vulture, and I don't see Shark, I don't think. But that's just fun. And then, of course, just the last page and her with the backdrop of the fire and her expression mm-hmm. and just like, yikes. And, of course, Shark bleeding behind. I think is just like powerful. Like who's yeah, who's next? As she says, so. Yeah, I also like how she. They have three panels on the last like four or five uh, panels of the last four or five pages going across the bottom row of this conversation with the hostile takeover of Gordon Clean Energy, and how it how it juxtaposes with the. The fight. Um, I know it's it's a very typical. It, it's 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 a type of writing that's I've seen before in comics, but I, I I like how Scott and Pelletier use it here. I think it's done very very well. So I did contact Prof Prof Professor Cheapskate Professor Alan mm-hmm. Middleton because I feel like he has something to do with economics. So I asked, you know, what what do you how much do you know about companies buying stock and hostile takeovers? And he said a decent amount. So I asked him some questions. So I wondered about basically this hostile takeover, freezing assets. Is that how it works? And what is a hostile takeover? So he did ask me a question. I, I didn't even follow up with this, but is Gordon Clean Energy on a stock market, a.k.a. publicly held or publicly traded company? And I don't know that I could answer that. I don't know if that's ever necessarily been discussed. I'd ha- How long has G- Gordon Clean Energy been part of? Gosh, um, since the Burnside Run, like issue yeah, thirty four, thirty five, because it was all created in order to take down their last enemy there. So, so it wasn't part of the Gail Simone. It was not, but it's hard. Yeah, and, I don't know. And it just kind of established that she was there, so we never saw her actually found the company. And then she in the Hope Larson run, she jetted off yeah, and left it to what. And they never mentioned like an IPO. And I mean, it was all for the people. Like it's all giving back to the people. So you'd think it would be. Yeah, but at the same time, private, but that's just um, Alan would know this better than I. A public and private company has to deal with like whether or not it's if stocks are traded on the stock exchange. Oh, okay. Or um, and therefore they have the value. <sighs> trying to remember how this works and and alan and alan can correct me if i'm wrong because he knows it's better than i do but when you make an ipo you are telling people who want to buy your stock on the stock market that your company is worth so much and that dictates the stock price so now you are making money off of people investing in your company and publicly trading shares but you're also now beholden to shareholders and um boards and things like that in a way that you wouldn't if you were privately traded. Well, given what's happening in this issue with that company coming out of nowhere and starting to buy things up, do you think yeah. that means it might be public? I would assume that it's a publicly traded company okay. because because if they wanted to buy out because there's been a lot of startups that have been bought out by bigger companies and that you could have scripted this different. You could have scripted this in a way that they are scaring her into buying up the company anyway, without mentioning like we're buying up all the shares and not from under you. Okay. 
So what did? How did he explain the uh, the hostile take? Yeah. So he did yeah. answer about hostile takeover. He says for two companies to merge, fifty percent of the shares for each company must agree to the details of the merger. One share equals one vote. One thousand shares equals one thousand votes, etc. If the two company stockholders don't agree to the merger, a second, more expensive option is the hostile takeover, where one company goes into the stock market to buy up to 50% of the other company's stock. With 50% of the stock, you can elect your people to the board of directors and put your people and ideas in place. Yeah. So then I asked, you know, if Alicia and Babs have 51%, if they vote together, so they have the 51%. But so I guess that's why if she gets rid of Babs, then Alicia only ha- – she's down to a quarter of the stock, really. Unless uh, – because Babs isn't there. And if Babs was in the meeting and wanted to fall on the sword, she could sell her shares to Alicia. Yeah. I don't know if that's if that's ethical or if it's possible. That's the only way I could see her preventing it. But yeah, I think you're right. So I did. If Alicia gets rid of Bab, she only has twenty five point five percent correct. Therefore, there's no way for her to stop the takeover. And he says either A or B. So Alicia or Babs can vote their twenty five point five percent with the takeover company and win those votes, kicking out the other. Meaning Batgirl would, yeah. Of course, that person would still have the contractual benefits they were entitled to, including executive severance, and they would still be very wealthy, owning slightly more than a quarter of the company. And then I did ask, oh, about the the leaking, because I thought that was a little shady. And he said, of course, the leaking of the Poison Ivy situation may count as blackmail, so they'd have some legal recourse before or after the fact. What do you think about... We didn't, thank you, Professor. I mean, as much as I give you a hard yeah. time, that I was very appreciative to like better understand what was happening there because I was like, this is not my wheelhouse at all. But what is your thought on that poison ivy that situation? Do you think it seems ethical? Like, could they just drop it in the news pile and uh, it'd be fine? They wouldn't have any ramifications. Oh no, I think I think they know exactly what they're doing. It, politically, it's pretty savvy. Just like. Poison. I mean, her name is literally Poison Ivy, <laughs> and and knowing. I mean, if we're talking a similar media environment to the one we have now, where people, you know, people can flip their lid over a tweet, um, it, it could it could be very effective as just anti-Gordon propaganda. It could cause. It could do. I, I mean, just from what I from what I know of of the media and and how people react to things and. And stuff, um, especially since it's such a local company, it could cause enough people to um, turn on them publicly, or it would be a public relations nightmare. But it also, any investors, people, VC people, or anything, anybody who's got money invested in there, it might scare them enough to pull it. Uh, So it's certainly leaving them weak weak enough so that they can kind of come in and scoop up what's left. Yeah. I guess I'll connect it now. So you, I think, read during Burnside, correct? Yeah, I, I read all off. of Burnside, yes. Okay, and you I hopped off, off at Hope? Like, issued like one or two of Hope's okay. run. Yeah. And then have kind of been spotty here, but have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So something that I mentioned in the previous episode is that I felt like this run, kind of, or DC editorial, maybe more so 
as I termed it, <laughs> has been Thanosing the Burnside run. Like getting rid of things that have that were started there. The costume, this company, some of the side characters. Do you, as someone who reads Touch and Go, I mean, what do you think? Is there any credence to what I have said? Do you see this? I do, actually. And it's frustrating because they're treating it like like it's some like we have to pretend the 90s never happened or something to the character you know like like you know like bad uniform and like you know extreme and all that crap <laughs> like it was booster gold or extreme justice or something and it's not i but then again i feel like apparently like i've said this before apparently i'm wrong for really liking the burnside run I don't get it. yeah i don't get like why people are so just anti that version of babs i mean like i like gail Simone's a writer but I just did not like her back or run and Burnside brought me back to the character and I was really just enjoying it. I think, you know, it was flawed in, in places. I mean, it's what a couple of years worth of stories. They're going to be flaws. Sure. They're going to be flaws. Um, I thought that Babs, I didn't think that Babs running a startup was unrealistic. I thought that Babs running a startup in the way that it was shown here where it seems to be as successful as it is and she's never around yeah. was unrealistic. Like she, this would consume her life. And granted, now it's all falling apart partially because she's not there. Yeah. But yeah, it, it does kind of buck me that it's like, you know, let's get rid of all the things that really invigorated the character. Mm-hmm. Just because I don't know, we don't like that. Yeah. Which is, you know, and I, but I don't know who is it coming from. Margaret Scott is it coming from editorial too? That's a good question. Yeah, I have no idea. You know, I mean. Unfortunately, my interview came before this issue, so I yeah I could not uh, talk to her about that. What do you think Alicia's going to do? Signs seem to point that she's going to sell the company. Yeah. At least based on what's in here. I think she she's going to be the good of the many, always the good of the few or the one. I would – I don't – it seemed like Professor Allen explained to us that even if like Alicia sells and Babs is basically cut out of the deal, she's still going to get some sort of compensation right. for it. They can't throw her out on the streets. How her yeah how they were able to freeze her at assets to the point where her check bounced I didn't understand yeah that. and he didn't get back to me on that um, so I don't know if maybe next episode or something I I hear or he writes in or something but yeah I would like to hear Possible. that because I don't really how can an outside company freeze somebody else's assets and how are her how is her bank account tied to that. Because it's directly impacting her, so it's very confusing. Yeah, so her, if it was her company's bank account, it would be. Yeah. Right? So she was paying for her apartment on the company dime. That seems okay. Unless, yeah, unless it's like her credit that's invested. Yeah, it, it I get for the, I get that the drama of it all. Of course, yeah. But at the same time, I'm just trying to think through the logistics of what little I know about finance and business economics, which is very little. This doesn't seem like it's that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, I agree. Well, Professor Allen, yeah, we need <laughs> we need you to explain yeah. what's happening here. Also, yes, I don't think her landlord would have thrown her out without yeah. trying to get. Did he mention he was trying to get in touch with her? I can't remember the last episode, but her check bounced or something. Yeah, but I know her check bounced. She must but have it's already like, had a security deposit, and when yeah. did she need another check already? 
Well, you would you would be what first security deposit sometimes first months and last months rent. Yeah. Unless um, that's what bounce is like. Unless that's first, what bounce, yeah. but at the same time it's weird to me that it'd be like, all right, in a nice place like that that they throw it right out on the street without giving her a call. Yeah, I don't know. I will say I agree with you. I think Alicia is probably going to sell the company. If not, that signs are pointing to it. The fact that Babs is very insistent that, you know, do whatever is in best interest for other people. And because basically everyone at the company has been threatened by this British company, then I think that's that's it. I wonder, you know, is this – what do you think the future of Gordon Queen – well, I guess Gotham Queen Energy is going to be? Do you think there's anything – evil about these uh these british people coming in there is this going to be a new storyline or do you think it's just like after this they're gonna write out this particular company and it won't even be a thought in the next uh writer i'm going with b okay Um, i think this is a way to end this maybe even i maybe they won't even see we won't even see alicia from here on i don't know maybe i think you're right if they're if they're thanosing this so they can and it, and if if you know the, the creative team now has been getting given this particular mandate, I think yeah, I think they're clearing the decks for another uh, something else. Okay, what's in the backpack? Right, we found out. <laughs> what do you think about this particular reveal that there is a parachute in the backpack? I liked it. Um, I like that she's resourceful enough because it 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 shoots out with enough force because it has to eject from the backpack. I I thought that was clever. I agree. It's a yeah. very bat. It's a very classic Batman gadget. <laughs> it yeah. is, isn't it? Yep, I enjoyed it. It certainly wasn't something that I was expecting. So I, I thought that it was a lot of fun, and it absolutely makes sense. And I think it makes sense that Babs would have a parachute in her backpack for just in case. Okay, so one of the struggles I had with this particular issue were the transitions. And in particular, going from like a really short Alicia scene to Jason, Alicia was in the apartment and then Jason on the street and then back to Alicia in the in the company. I just thought, why not have the two Alicia scenes together and like follow her as she's walking to the company? Do you have any was this transition hard for you at all? Do you have any comments on that? I know they have to account for all the subplots. And it all ramps up the drama in her personal life. So I understand that it's all there for a reason and it works for a reason. It seems like a, a – let's see. It seems like the second Alicia Page where she arrives at the Gordon Clean Energy headquarters should have come a little later mm. or been reduced to one of those um, under panel pages or something because but granted the way the fight is paced it would have really broken up the pacing so I think it's just there that's the way it ha- they have to put that in there but they had to find a way because between the first Alicia scene and then when they, we start seeing her on the bottom of the page there's like all the big fight parts of the fight like you know shark juicing up and everything and to break that up i think would have been awkward so it's i think it's just it's just have it's there because it has to be those probably the best way they could fit it mm, yeah that's that you know i think i think it's oddly paced but i can't see another way to do it <laughs> yeah i think with the fight the fight going between wow the fight, the fight. Going between the fight and the Alicia, you know, I think that pairs well just because, you know, Alicia's fighting these companies and they're talking about Barbara as, you know, Barbara's not doing anything with this company. And then it's ironic because she's doing a lot, but you just don't know what she's doing. 
I think that works well. It's just like the weird three pages where she's at her apartment and then there's Jason and then she's back again. And I kind of wish those were reordered, but that's – I can't do anything about how people are writing things. So. Okay. So ugh. Jason and Barbara's stuff. <laughs> what – What's your take on this? The fact that he cares to this extent that he's now going to bring it to... So he's not only... You read 34. He not only was going to bring her food, but he was there when basically she's been kicked out of her apartment. Now he's with her stuff. Now he's going to bring her stuff to his apartment. Thoughts on this? How much do you know of Jason Bard of this continuity? Um, Only from what I've picked up from what I've read and from listening to you. Okay. So not a whole heck of a lot. I don't know. I, I just, he's doing a nice thing for somebody. Um, and the only, and he's trying to think on his feet. So the first place he thinks of is just moving it all to his place so that the bums in the street and the pickers don't take it away. You know, I guess the more practical or the less weird thing to do would to be, to, to rent out a storage facility and put it there. I don't know, but, but I don't know how practical that is at three well, whatever the heck they're doing this in the, is it supposed to be like three in the morning? Oh God! I guess so. Actually, yeah, it's supposed yeah, to be that it's yeah because he fell asleep on the curb, so like he's one. calling a moving company at like three forty-five in the morning. That he's not going to be able to get one. Interesting, but the so, coloring looks so light. Yeah, I just think the whole thing is really, 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 really weird. I don't, I can't put my finger on what exactly is happening, why he's being so nice. Margaret Scott is, Scott is saying that he's just trying to make up for his past sins. This possible. is all stuff like a stalker slash romantic interest would do. If this were Jason Bard of the 70s, I'd be all for it because absolutely he would do this. But this is not Jason Bard of the 70s. This is a guy who was pretty shady, you know, got her father kicked off the forest for a time. So I just think that this is very, very bizarre. I'm I'm interested to see what it's going to be. Is it going to be like Felix and that other guy? What what's his name? Oscar. Yes. The odd couple. Living it up, shacking up. I don't know, like non romantically, because I can't really see together. It's just really weird. I I don't know what's going to happen. I feel like it's not going to be resolved in the next issue. So maybe it's something that Cecil will be taking and running with. And it's a bit forced. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit forced. I think my final discussion is just the fight with uh, Batgirl and Shark. It's, I mean, she's very much out of her depth if you look at size wise. Uh-huh. <laughs> she handles herself well. Do you think this is believable? Did you enjoy this fight? Do you think that it was choreographed well artistically, etc.? Yeah. I think the narration helps, you know, where she's trying to hit him where she thinks it might. Uh, work in that one like I gotta switch to these although it's not really gonna help she seems to be dodging hitting him where she can she doesn't seem to be getting much on him and yeah has to resort to uh, she doesn't overpower him she she stabs him in the eye with her gauntlet I mean that's yeah that's that's exactly one way to get him because you hit him in this in a very sensitive area I think it's a well choreographed uh, fight it almost reminds me of, you know, Batman versus Bane almost, you know, just like, or Batman and Killer Croc. You know, you've got to, you can't go at it necessarily brawn v. brawn because Batgirl is, you know, yeah. of yeah, lower you have to weight to like than fight the other around person. them. Yeah. yeah. 
you got a featherweight versus a, a heavyweight, I suppose. So, yeah, she does what she can. I think she's really smart about it, and, and it, it works out well. I think, you know, looking at this, though, I think it's just inconsistent sometimes with how Batgirl fights because sometimes it seems like she gets beat up. Mm-hmm. And then, but then you look at this, and you're like, okay, so she's doing really well here, but she was beat up by grotesque, whoo! Mm. But you know, got beat up by him, got beat up a little bit by Comorant. Remember, he threw that copy machine at her. So it's just kind of, you know, I think we need to decide what level of fighting ability she has, and and kind of stick with it because if she can get this guy, she should be able to tangle with the others. So, oh, good well. point. Well, out of ten bats. What would you give this issue? And, of course, if you have anything else to say, you may at this time. 8.5. 8.5? Yeah, because wow. I really like the fight sequences. I thought the hostile takeover thing, um, even if we are trying to figure out whether or not all these things work like this, I still think it's well scripted, and it's like a really, really good dramatic moment. The art is tremendous. Paul Peltier is such a great artist and and does what I think what Tom Grummet would have done if he was doing Batgirl. It's 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 very reminiscent of that, which and he's one of my favorite artists. So uh yeah, the the flaws are just a little bit of some of the character beats with like like you mentioned Jason Bard, um, you know, and that and that some of the weird pacing in, in that middle section. But uh but overall I really, really enjoyed it. Do you like the terrible trio? Do you think this is something I didn't ask you because they were behind Comorant? Do you like that the Terrible Trio is the the last baddie for Scott, her tenure? Yeah, I think they're right. I like Shark. Um, I like the infighting, the bickering between the three of them. They're all right. I mean, she could have chosen worse villains. Sure. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I thought I liked it a little bit better than the previous issue, but there are just some weird things happening. The Jason stuff happening is weird, and I need some more economic understanding of what's happening with that and and again i just don't like the fact that all of the hard work i think that the burnside crew did is just being washed away to a certain extent but i agree with the fighting and the art i thought was really solid and the little backpack reveal finally knowing what it is uh, was also a lot of fun so and she yeah she had to use brawn and well she had to use her body as well as her mind in this particular issue which is always fun to see Okay, now over to Chris for Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities. Ah, that's like sunshine after five straight days of rain and getting the last issue off the rack of the sought-after comic book of the week on new release day at your local comic shop. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities segment. Thank you very much, listeners, for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. Today, I'm covering Batman Adventures number 20, and in the Nightwatch segment, Nightwing number 60. Batman Adventures number 20 was originally cover priced at $1.50. We have the usual creative team of Kelly Puckett as the writer, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, Rick Taylor was the colorist, and Starking's Comic Craft did the lettering. I wanted to give them a shout-out because I thought they did a very fine job here. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This work was reprinted in the Batman Adventures Volume 2 and appears to be available on Comixology. I'm not sure if it's on the DC Universe app or not. Our story today is entitled Smells Like Black Sunday. Act 1. And a Professor Shall Lead Them. This first chapter opens at night with the Professor and Mastermind fleeing a bank robbery in a green convertible with Batman in pursuit. As Mastermind is driving, the professor is writing in his diary about the prior events that led them to this point. Specifically, 
the jailbreak involving himself, Mastermind, and Mr. Nice. Two days ago, at the prison cafeteria, the trio agreed to team up again. Mastermind asks the professor to create a diversion, and he obliges by standing up and calmly saying, Fire. Amid the ensuing chaos, Mr. Nice manages to disable a guard and get his gun. The professor tells Mr. Nice to shoot at a particular spot, thus taking out the power lines and putting the room in complete darkness. The men make their way outside through a drain pipe, only to be confronted by a pack of Rottweilers. While Mastermind and Mr. Nice argue about whether to shoot the dogs, the professor quickly whittles a flute to go 13 octaves above high C, and Mastermind blows the flute, sending the dogs to retreat. Act 2. Flying Blind with Mastermind Back in the present, with a Batmobile pursuing the professor and Mastermind, the professor asks about a stopwatch on the dashboard of the car. Mastermind says he's devised a route to go through downtown Gotham that will take him a sustained 90 miles per hour without hitting a red light. He then also reports a shooting with a responding police car impeding the path of the Batmobile. However, a traffic cop slows down Mastermind's driving long enough for Batman to catch up to them. Batman corrals Mastermind and the Professor, but Mastermind gloats that Batman is too late. Mr. Nice has begun a raid at the Fort Briggs compound, seizing their nuclear warheads. While Mastermind celebrates with glee, Batman quickly places a call to Commissioner Gordon. Act 3. Legend of the Dark Nice Having promised not to be nice until after midnight, Mr. Nice fires a machine gun at troops and makes his way to the vestibule of the nuclear warhead storage facility where he's confronted by a puppy who says, Arf! Mr. Nice points his gun at the dog. Sweat develops on his brow. The dog looks at him confused, and Mr. Nice's hand begins to quiver. Smash cut to the three villains back in the prison cafeteria. Mastermind starts to hatch another plan, but his companions quickly leave and a pair of guards put Mastermind in a trash can. The End The three villains first appeared in the Riddler story back in Batman Adventures number 10. The villains' likenesses are based on the comic professionals Denny O'Neill, Mike Harlan, and Archie Goodwin, respectively. If you're looking for a deep, introspective Batman story, you won't find it here. This is a fun issue with a lot of humor. Each chapter focused on one of the villains, and they all had their moment with their personalities and quirks shining through and played to, and leading to their eventual downfall. The artwork was excellent. Burchett really did a great job with some nice thick ink lines in places. The car chase was spectacular, and all the action scenes were perfectly rendered, including a nice depiction of Batman swinging on a bat line on the opening splash page. I am giving Batman Adventures number 20, 9 out of 10 bats. Now for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I look at Nightwing from a shipper's perspective. Nightwing number 60 was cover dated July 2019. The fiery entity known as Burnback continues to wreak havoc, though I'm not sure it's exactly named as such in this issue. As a side note, I'm still adjusting to the blue thought boxes not being attributed to Dick, er, excuse me, Rick Grayson. We do get a two-page scene of Rick and his current girlfriend, B, and although it feels a little obligatory, they do share an embrace and a kiss. And with that, I'm compelled to give Nightwing number 60 a mild, repeat, a very mild shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. Hey, listeners, don't forget you can also catch Stella on their Required Reading podcast. Want to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord World's Trekker Talk Xenozoic Xenophiles, all fine podcasts. 
You can find me on Twitter at BTOMBatBooks. Occasionally I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, some old Batman comics or whatnot. I hope you get a follow if you're not already following it. The handle again is BTOMBatBooks, BTO as in Batgirl to Oracle, and BatBooks as in Batbooks for Beginners. That's another podcast I can be found on that I co-host with Jerry, where we examine and review trade paperbacks of collected Batman or related characters in trade paperback form. You can also find us talking about independent comics and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please check that out if you're not doing so already. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself or on this segment on the TBU website, and please consider giving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman universe that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. Hey, I also want to thank Dustin, Ian, and Steph for letting me sit in on a recent episode of the Batman Universe comic podcast. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. It was a blast. Thank you so much, guys. I also want to give a shout-out to comic creator Ron Randall for appearing on a recent episode of the Professor Frenzy Show that I co-host with Jerry. Please consider supporting his current Kickstarter project for the new Trekker book, Battlefields. For more information, go to trekkerkickstarter.com. Will Catwoman be evil or an ally in the next Batman adventure? Will Man-Bat be evil or an ally in the next Batman adventure? Can Batman possibly overcome the evil plan of mad scientist Emile Dorian and the menagerie released on Gotham City? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these mad, mauling, marauding, macabre, mythological, morphical missives will be answered next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. We're winding down, and I've got... My anime watch list, which actually ties into the sponsored podcast of this episode because I was on that podcast to talk about Nausicaa, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. So here we are. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is the film, anime film that I'm recommending. It's from 1984, if you haven't seen it already. So it's been on a while. It's about two hours long. A millennium has passed since the catastrophic nuclear war named the Seven Days of Fire, which destroyed nearly all life on Earth. Humanity now lives in a constant struggle against the treacherous jungle that has evolved in response to the destruction caused by mankind. Filled with poisonous spores and enormous insects, the jungle spreads rapidly across the Earth and threatens to swallow the remnants of the human race. Away from the jungle exists a peaceful farming kingdom known as the Valley of the Wind, whose placement by the sea frees it from the spread of the jungle's deadly toxins. The valley's charismatic young princess, Nausicaa, finds her tranquil kingdom disturbed when an airship from the kingdom of Tomikia crashes violently in the valley. After Nausicaa and the citizens of the valley find a sinister pulsating object in the wreckage, the valley is suddenly invaded by the Tomikian military who intend to revive a dangerous weapon from the Seven Days of Fire. Now Nausicaa must fight to stop the Tomikians from plunging the earth into a cataclysm which humanity could never survive, while also protecting the valley from the encroaching forces of the toxic jungle. This is actually one of the, if not the, first Studio Ghibli film. Uh, Miyazaki was writing the story. He put it out there, and the people said, no, we don't want to make an anime of this because it has nothing to do with current things that are out there. So he finished, he ended up writing a manga, and then they're like, oh, we're really excited about this. And he took some members from a defunct anime company and basically created this. Well, I think it was like 
members from that and then they created Ghibli. But anyways, it's really wonderful. Uh, you know, once again, a strong female character that Miyazaki has created and someone who is flawed, but also a lot of empathy and... I, it's hard. I I would recommend listening to that episode I was on because it's really hard for me to talk in only a few moments about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. But just really, as with many of the Ghibli films and Miyazaki films, just so many layers of death to go through. So I recommend it. And then the TV show that I'm currently watching because it's good in small bursts is, uh, let's see here, Yakusuku. Yakusoku no Neverland or The Promised Neverland, which just finished 2019, 12 episodes. Surrounded by a forest and a gated entrance, the Grace Field House is inhabited by orphans happily living together as one big family, looked after by their mama, Isabella. Although they are required to take tests daily, the children are free to spend their time as they see fit, usually playing outside as long as they do not venture too far from the orphanage, a rule they are expected to follow no matter what. However, all good times must come to an end, as every few months a child is adopted and sent to live with their new family, never to be heard from again. However, the three oldest siblings have their suspicions about what is actually happening at the orphanage, and they are about to discover the cruel fate that awaits the children living at Gracefield, including the twisted nature of their beloved mama. I will say that boys are a twist in the very first episode and you realize what's because it's all happy for three quarters of the episode. And in the last quarter, you're like, what just happened? Oh, my goodness. This is darker than I thought. So that's why I watch it in little bits and pieces. But so I have no idea what's going to happen at the end. I'm hopeful, but I'm kind of afraid that my hope is going to be dashed but so it's actually it's really intriguing and I recommend it. I'm watching it with it's Japanese with English subtitles on Crunchyroll. I don't know if they have an English dub yet, but I will say Nausicaa has both Japanese and and English. Um, you have Patrick Stewart plays one of the characters in Nausicaa. Shia LaBeouf plays another character, which is kind of funny to hear him. So there you go. There's my movie and my TV show. So now on to the penultimate time that <laughs> Tom could give his literature recommendation outside of required reading. So Tom, what have you been reading i did see a recent post today on the twitter yes um i had uh i had recently finished and reviewed uh, a collection of stories by raymond carver called where i'm calling from and you can read that over on a required reading with thomas Stella blog i was looking back through what i read and i was trying to remember last time i was on um so i picked two from the last month or so um the first is that I read the first two volumes, collected volumes, of Walt Simonson's run on Thor from the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, about a year or two ago, Marvel was having one of those – like they're having one of those huge like 99-cent, $1.99 graphic novel sales on um, Amazon digitally for Marvel. I think I spent like $10 and got worth – you know, it was worth like you know a couple hundred bucks worth of uh, – worth of digital graphic novels and stuff. And uh, among them were the first two volumes of the Walt Simonson Thor, which I had never read and is absolutely amazing. It's Norse gods and Beta Ray Bill and, and uh, fighting against, you know, ancient evils that have come back. Um, there's just a lot of what we would end up seeing in, in uh, the Marvel movies and stuff. So I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I would highly recommend it. And uh, the another one that I recently finished is a memoir. It's called Shrill, 
uh, <laughs> by, Lindy, by Lindy West, who uh, for a long time was a writer and editor at Jezebel and is now um, – I can't remember who she writes for now. Here's the description off Goodreads. Coming of age in a culture that demands women be as small, quiet, and compliant as possible, like a porcelain dove that also will have sex with you. Writer and humorist Lindy West quickly discovered she was anything but. From a painfully shy childhood in which she tried unsuccessfully to hire her big body and even bigger opinions, to her public war with stand-up comedians over rape jokes, to her struggle to convince herself and then the world that fat people have value, to her accidental activism and never-ending battle royale with internet trolls, Lindy narrates her life with a blend of humor and pathos that manages to make the trip to the abortion clinic funny and roaring tears out of a story about diarrhea. With inimitable good humor, vulnerability, and boundless charm, Lindy boldly shares how to survive in a world where not all stories are created equal and not all bodies are treated with equal respect and how to weather hatred, loneliness, harassment, and loss and walk away laughing. Shrill provocatively dissects what it means to become self-aware the hard way, to go from wanting to be silent and invisible to earning a living defending the silenced in all caps. It's really, really good and it's a really honest memoir of basically what it was like to be uh, both a woman and a for lack of a better word um, fat woman on the internet over the last five ten years um, you know just her like the just her like word for word like reprinting like what people would said to her in comments and tweets and things like that and and remind just reminded me like of all the crap that a lot of especially women have gone through um but but even then it's just utterly hilarious i had read her for a while on um when she was still on jezebel and, and really liked her writing and she's just she's really really funny and i believe this was turned into a television series on hulu with uh ad bryant from saturday night live playing the main character but I have not watched it because I don't get Hulu. So, okay. but but it was really really good. It's really really good. I think yeah. I feel like I know maybe what you're talking about on the Hulu. Mm-hmm. Okay, I laughed at the title <laughs> when I saw it on your Goodreads. I thought, oh, that's fun. So yeah, maybe I'll pick that up. Any others or those two? Let me see. Check my other Goodreads. Mostly, um, I reread Invasion, the DC crossover from. Oh, wow. 1988, because I'm going through Siskoid and Bass's First Strike and Invasion podcast over on the Fire and Water Network. I got about three episodes of that left. Um, and then I read what I picked up at Free Comic Book Day two Voltron trade paperbacks from the Dynamite uh, run, which actually was really good. I, I had never read it and I enjoyed it. Uh, the first volume of Tom King's Vision series. Oh, I've heard good things about it. How yeah, um, I really liked it. Now I have to pick up the second volume because because it kind of ends on a cliffhanger, but it was really really good, uh, really really fun and, and creepy in places. And then um, yeah, it just kind of flew me back. I, like I said, I can't remember when when we uh, when we last last talked. So. Mm. There you go. And I'm, I'm reading. I don't want to mention too much of what we're reading on for required reading. So, uh. yeah, because we're yeah, we're ahead. So this is to peek behind the curtain. Tom and I are about to do a marathon of recording over the next three weeks. Three episodes Basically, three weeks. Yeah. I know we're about to squeeze our summer in our summer episodes, I guess, a little bit. Part of the reason is because 
vacations. Yeah, and pretty much. also I I've got my little program over in Italy. So I haven't had time really. This is we're actually recording late May. So I've all I'm in the midst of reading this book, but I will recommend it because I'm nearly done. It is The Power of One by Bryce Courtenay. In 1939, as Hitler casts his enormous, cruel shadow across the world, the seeds of apartheid take root in South Africa. There, a boy called Piquet is born. His childhood is marked by humiliation and abandonment, yet he vows to survive and conceives heroic dreams, which are nothing compared to what life actually has in store for him. He embarks on an epic journey through a land of tribal superstition and modern prejudice, where he will learn the power of words, the power to transform lives, and the power of one. For whatever reason, we were shown this film my freshman year of high school, and I really can't connect to how like what concepts we were thinking of. I I almost wish I could email my freshman teachers (laughs) and figure it out. But anyways, my mom had a copy of this and it might be a first edition. I don't know because it was like in vacuum sealed wrap and it's been on my shelf for a very long time. I have now removed the vacuum seal wrap and I started reading it. And I've, I've actually been really enjoying it. I'm sure this would actually count as a white savior trope though with PK. But yeah, it's, it's, really engaging and it's a longer one so it's 500 pages so i'm about 350 in i think so but i'll finish it up but that's to say that that's the only one i've had time to read before this episode recorded so there you go well we're wrapping up here i did contact professor allen as you were talking because i wondered why i told him he needs to to write in here and he says that the freezing of assets here he says it's a legal process a judicial process so it cannot be done willy-nilly without he usually he used those words it cannot be done willy-nilly without a court order as part of a legal process mm-hmm. freezing assets is usually done at the federal level often as part of of a drug forfeiture or similar cases. And I said, huh? So how is this company doing it? There are concerns about overly aggressive asset freezing by FBI, SEC, blah, blah, blah. He says, that's a very good question. Maybe they are doing it under the auspices of a federal investigation, although that does not seem to be the case here, especially since they're foreign. How, how would they have anything to do with yeah. I assume I'm getting credit for this. A link on the webpage playing a promo, something like that. And he's got like 10 question marks by that. That's ridiculous. As we Don't you think we've given him enough credit? As we said before, a company with stock on a stock market available for the public to purchase is under the jurisdiction of many rules and regulations from the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I don't know. I think we still, I just don't understand how... This is all working, frankly. How her finances are tied in with the finances yeah, of the company. If it is federal forfeiture, why would the a British company have anything to do with that? Yeah. I, I understand the dramatic reason for it. I understand how it works in terms of the plot and the and everything. And, and, and the tension that it places and all that. But yeah, logi- the logistics and the realistic the realism of it I, I don't entirely get. If and I wonder if, to what extent, you know, should we be yeah, hung up on this, you know, because it is a comic book. But I feel like if you're going to bring in real world elements, like it mm-hmm. needs to make sense and it needs to be realistic. That's a good point. I mean, 
Uh, I mean, I mean, because because there's you, you do suspend a little bit of disbelief when it comes to say like detective or police shows in terms of actual police procedure and how it's shown on television. So I guess we can afford to suspend some disbelief for things working not exactly working the way they would in the real world. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out Dorkness to Light, .blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or darknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Darkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. So... We don't really care about where Professor Allen can be found, but Tom, where can you be found? Well, you can find um, M Middleton at relatively because oh. that, that I mean that's that's, true. that's worth the the quarter of mission there. That is true. Um, so go M. Uh, I can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit. That's popcultureaffidavit.com, where you can find. Uh, blog posts, essays, etc. about popular culture, and also it's the home to two of my podcasts, In Country, a podcast that's looking at Marvel Comics' The Nom, which is nearing its end. I have, as of this recording, eight episodes, or sorry, yeah, eight episodes and a wake-up left. And Pop Culture Affidavit, that podcast, which is closing in on episode 100, episode 97. Oh. Episode ninety and episode ninety eight, uh, which should be out in June if I can get my act together, will be my contribution to the ongoing 80th anniversary of Batman. I'm going to be looking at a book that came out in 1989 called Tales of the Dark Knight: Batman's First Fifty Years by Mark Cotavaz, um, because it was like one of the first things places where I ever really got a lot of information about Batman because I used to check it out on the library like all the time. So look for that in June, and then I'm closing it on issue episode 100 later this this summer. Uh, and you can find also find both of those on the Two True Freaks Network, where you can also find required reading with Tom and Stella, which is required <laughs> reading at TomAndStella.com. And you can find me on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. I will say finally, I can finally do this for you that I've been enjoying. 
in country. Oh, cool. It is my current running companion. I'm only on episode 13. But it's really funny to listen to you listen back. Your previous Taking Flight was my other running companion. Because some. I think the first episode you said, like, some sort of joke about your I'll just be talking to myself kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, same. That's, you know, how it is. And yeah. then when you get to a Gumby ad and you're doing the voices... I'm just like smiling as I'm running because envisioning you making those voices cracks me up. But it's been it's been really interesting. I'm I'm thankful for you doing the historical stuff of like what's actually happening and then going through the terms and the letters and everything. I think it's I, I enjoy it. Yeah, I really enjoy that part too. Um, the letter columns and the nom are really good, uh, especially in, in those in, in those early like first. 30 or 40 issues and stuff and uh and i really enjoy doing the history part of it because i think it really adds to it um so I, and i'm still doing that like with episode 91 which i think just came out i'm just in the history where i think i just covered like the middle of 1973 so like you know so so when i hit issue episode 100 which is going to be the last episode i'll have covered it all the way up to the fall of Saigon in 75 and then probably done some history about like post the post-war, you know, mm. but no, I really, really enjoy doing that because it, it allows me to be both the comic nerd and the history nerd and, the, and in some cases movie lit nerd as you'll find out as you go through it some more. Sounds good. I can't, yeah, I think the, actually the next episode, the episode that just started was the things they carried. Oh, cool. Which I paused because I think you were about to talk about Tim O'Brien and I didn't, I was at the end of my run. So, All right. yeah. So anyway, it's yeah, it. fun, so I recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for our show. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backroll to oracle at gmail.com or contact. I can always forward things to Professor Allen if you feel like he didn't explain very well or Tom if you've got a problem with that with his problem with Batman. Mm. Uh, you can also find the show on Google Player and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle, and follow the Batman universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support TBU by subscribing to Patreon, and once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, and here's hoping that you catch that rotten thief. Next time will be some more Birds of Prey, so we'll see if there are any floating Babs heads, hashtag Carolyn knows. But until then... Fly on, Babs lovers. Yay! Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?